Hello and welcome to the D2C Podcast. I'm Eric Dick. Today, we are magnetically drawn to past guest Margaret Fortner, head of growth at Glamnetic. When Glamnetic recruited Margaret, she was naturally attracted to the beauty space. Glamnetic has revolutionized the beauty game and has made quite a splash in the $1 billion false lash market by adding a magnetic eyeliner that allows for superior function and durability. In this podcast, Margaret describes exactly what she's focused on in her first year as head of growth, including formalizing the creative testing process by using smart naming conventions, CPG versus beauty, and why gross margins are everything, launching retail and Amazon, refining Glabnetic's influencer marketing platform, testing successfully into TV and podcast ads, as well as Glamnetic's bundling strategies and the mechanics of a mystery offer. I hope Margaret's charged opinions aren't too polarizing. Okay, enough magnet puns. Let's get on with the show. I think if you're not constantly A-B testing in SMS or email, you're doing it wrong. One of the biggest mistakes that people make while testing is you run a test, maybe you capture the results, not all people actually capture the results properly, but then not acting upon those results. Like a lot of times you say, okay, we ran this A-B test, this one did better, and then it's dropped. We make sure to track super closely what worked and then have a conversation about why we think it worked and how we can iterate that moving forward and make sure that we're pressure testing that variable that we think has been impactful. This podcast is sponsored by Klaviyo, the email and text marketing platform that puts D2C brands in control. If you're the leader of a D2C brand, you need a platform that hustles as hard as you do. Klaviyo unlocks the power of your e-commerce data so you can personalize and automate messages that keep customers coming back. D2C brands communicate with Klaviyo. Get started for free at klaviyo.com DTC. Welcome back to the podcast, Margaret, back by popular demand. When we previously spoke, you were leading the growth at Hydrant. You've since jumped to Glamnetic. I wanted to know if we could start a little bit with your observations about the difference being, you know, the head of growth for a CPG company versus a beauty company like Glamnetic. Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I think there are a couple different things. Uh, first being, you know, CPG, super exciting category, obviously a huge category with growth in D2C. Um, there are some challenges, I would say, from you know an advertising standpoint that I think anyone who has a consumable product has to deal with in terms of you know what you can say about the product, what it does, what its impacts are. You know, uh, you have to focus a lot more kind of on how a product makes you feel, which you know it's definitely valid. It's not you know making up anything about how the product makes you feel. I still drink hydrant on a daily basis, um, but it's it's more if you have to convince someone of how they're going to feel. You can't necessarily talk as much about what it does. Whereas with beauty, it's a very visual medium, which since we're in such kind of a visual, like video driven era of advertising right now, it's extremely powerful. You know, there's nothing as powerful as kind of a, you know, before and after swipe of, oh, I have the lash on this eye and I don't have it on this eye. And I look like two completely different people to some degree. I mean, it was amazing. The first time I, you know, gave some lashes to my friend and she put them on and it looked like she had done, you know, a full face of makeup in just the like one minute of applying the lash. So I think being able to just show that to people and make it so immediately evident, I don't want to say it's easier because obviously beauty is, you know, a highly competitive category, but you really get that first three second thumb stopping pop in a manner that I think is a lot uh, more challenging kind of on the consumable side of things. 
And then on the customer side of things, like, you know, increasing your hydration is a lifelong benefit, but it's different than when you just slap it on at home and you see yourself totally transformed. So it's also just like, it's in that, it's, it's in how you sell it, but it's also in that customer satisfaction piece as well, I feel like. Yeah, for sure. And um, we also just have, and this was true on you know both teams, but we have a really built out um, CX team on the, the Glamnetic side um, that uh, is led by our, our wonderful head of CX, Mia Chaba. Um, she just has this great team and they're so great at guiding customers to the right product for them. Because I think one thing that's more challenging on the Glamnetic side is we have over 70 lashes of styles at this point, or uh, 70 styles of lashes at this point, over 20 styles of nails. So um, unless you've you know, worn magnetic lashes previously, you don't necessarily know what to go to immediately. So I think it's really important to have that CX touch point to say, okay, uh, what do your eyes look like? What do you want to wear this for? Um, what have you worn previously? If maybe you've gone the traditional glue lashes and helps really guide them to that touch point. But um, we, we found that we have a very sticky customer base, which is great for me, sitting across both acquisition and retention, because the more kind of returning customers that you can get, obviously, the easier your life is from an acquisition standpoint. Well, we'll dive into some of the more technical customer acquisition stuff that you brought to us last time with Hydrant. But could we start a little bit with a bit of the story about Glamnetic? Like, obviously, it had a magnetic pull for you to join them. Their story is pretty incredible. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that here? So Glamnetic was founded about two years ago by um, Anne McFerrin, who emigrated to the U.S. from Thailand back when she was seven. Um, and, you know, when she was growing up, um, she gained a lot of confidence from makeup and from beauty products and just has kind of been like a student of the beauty industry um, since she was very young. Um, she actually went to college for pre-med um, and ended up graduating and ultimately felt like she wasn't getting the creative outlet that she wanted to in kind of her very, you know, scientifically and mathematically driven classes. And so she became an artist for a couple of years out of college and was kind of experimenting with new beauty products that were in the space, including the traditional glue-on eyelashes. And she basically found that there was nothing on the market that was durable, was high quality, gave her the look that she wanted to see. So she essentially decided, okay, I'm going to kind of marry my quantitative, logical, analytical brain from the pre-med side and my creative brain and bring them together and I'm going to make the lash that I would want to wear. So, you know, she started working with suppliers and designing and doing this all out out of her bedroom. Um, And now, you know, in our first full year of business in 2020, we did about 50 million in revenue, um, which was super exciting. And that was, you know, primarily when we were direct to consumer business. And now we've grown into a very kind of omni-channel business. You know, we're in Ulta, we're on Sephora.com, Nordstrom.com, um, and our Amazon business has been a really exciting area of growth for us as well. So it's, it's really exciting to see what this team has been able to do um, thanks to just, you know, a great idea and a very interesting background from Anne. That's amazing. Like just to start with the early days, this is probably a little bit before your time, but it's interesting that the brand started direct to consumer, like right out of the gate. Do you know how the results were early on then? I think the product probably has a lot going for it in that it is probably a higher margin product. I don't, I don't know your material cost and things like that. It's an easy to ship product. It's got all these visceral benefits. Can you talk a little bit about the results that you guys saw early on with the product? Yeah, I mean, it, you hit it right on the nose. It's you know super easy to ship, and and beauty more broadly, everyone knows this has pretty solid margins um, compared to a lot of other uh, categories. But I think a lot of businesses saw this. Uh, I think 2020 was the first year, at least in my time in, in uh, paid acquisition, that CPMs were down. Like they've been steadily rising for all the time as more and more people were getting on on Facebook in particular. So we just the, the team just really went 
ham, for lack of a better term, in terms of customer acquisition. And I think due to a combination of, you know, what I mentioned earlier about how creative and visual the product is, our really amazing video editing team, I, I can't say enough good things about them and all the great work that they do, and just kind of opportunistic buying, along with our excellent CX team, uh, kind of being on the back end to help guide those people, we were just able to really take advantage of an opportunity. And I think, at least when we got into the magnetic glass space, and now there are some more competitors that have come into the space, but it was a somewhat nascent category. Um, you know, glue lashes have been around for forever, but this concept of lashes that are reusable over and over and have higher quality materials, that was something somewhat new. So we did have to do a bit of the legwork of kind of explaining why these are better, but you know, there's always something good to be said for first mover advantage. Um, so I, I think that definitely helped as well. I wanted to talk a little bit about the product itself and these, the, all the different SKUs that you have. Sorry, how many totally different eyelash SKUs are there? Um, I want to say it's right. We just released a bunch uh, about two weeks ago. It's it's either 65 or 70 right now. Um, the PD team is going to kick me for not knowing the number right off the top of my head, but it's either 65 or 70. Um, and then we also do a ton of bundling, um, which is, you know, an, an AOV focused person's best friend, of course. Is this your founder still sort of innovating? Is this just sort of keeping in touch with what is happening on social media? Like when it comes to generating this many styles of eyelashes, I just didn't know that there were that many. Yeah, um, it's a combination of a couple of things. You know, Anne is still extremely involved in our PD process. She basically leads that function. Um, and, you know, she's constantly talking to the customers. We have a really strong community. Uh, we have a, this huge Facebook group called the Glam Fam. Uh, they give us, you know, some of our best ideas and they're very energetic and always interested in, you know, trying new things and giving us feedback. We also do a ton of surveying, um, you know, post-purchase surveying. We have a quiz. Uh, we do ad hoc surveys to specific customer segments. So I like to think we actually have a pretty strong understanding of what our customer wants, what they're interested in. And this is both divided by, you know, the people who bought six plus times versus the first time buyers. And then to your point, exactly, it's monitoring what's going on with, on social, monitoring what's going on in the industry more broadly, um, looking to other countries and other markets to see what's developing there. Um, we just released uh, a technology of gel nail stickers, which really it was kind of the first time it had been done at scale in the US, but it had been a technology that was utilized in South Korea for a long time. So um, I, I would say it's a combination of um, just Anne's kind of gut instinct and being the consumer, um, deep surveying, engagement with our glam bam community, and just broader kind of monitoring of the market. Are you going to get Squid Game press on nails? I'd be, I think if you're coming out of South Korea, you've got to get some Squid Game symbols on there. That's a great question. I'm going to have to... Uh, shoot a DM over to Netflix right after this. I love it. Now back to your, uh, back to the, the, the ads and back to the content production. It sounds like, you know, you really understand obviously the value proposition with these lashes. Can you talk a little bit about the, the creation process? Do you have your creatives down to like a finely tuned strategy at this point, or are you constantly sort of seeking new ways to make it work? And my second question is obviously the before and after aspect of this product must be extremely powerful. How do you build that into the ad experience without triggering Facebook's rules? Yeah, um, it's a great question. I would say it's a combination of a finely tuned science and um, testing a lot of new things or, or wild storming, as we like to call it. Um, you know, we have this, 
very detailed uh, naming convention that then feeds into our you know strong uh, data infrastructure and warehouse and everything. So you know we can break things down by uh, the model involved, the product involved, everything like that. Uh, whether we it was a testimonial or a montage, how long it was, um, and kind of just aggregate all that data to come up with an idea of what the best performing asset is. But then it's also saying okay. Um, once we've gotten enough spend or enough conversions against a specific asset, then we go down. To, that's when we get more into kind of the scientific process side of things and start making tiny iterations and say, all right, this worked really well. Let's make five versions of it where we slightly change this one thing, whether it's, you know, different opening text up front or a different model in it or something like that. So, uh, but at the same time, especially when you're kind of spending at the scale that we are, you have to keep having constant new ideas or else you're going to fall behind because you might have that one hit that carries you for a couple of weeks. But I mean, the what Facebook wants to see is honestly changing relatively quickly as well. And, and you have this in-house as, as well, right? You have your creative sort of process in-house, which is probably a big deal for the amount of iterations you're looking to make. Yeah, I mean, it, I think we wouldn't be able to do what we do um, if we didn't do it in-house. And we, we have a really cohesive um, and kind of collaborative video editing team. And, you know, no one's... Uh, ego or anything gets in the way of anything, everyone's willing to just kind of hop in and contribute. And we have a couple of people who have, you know, one more specialized skill set than another, but they build one thing and maybe, maybe someone's better at motion graphics. And so they build it and then push it into a montage that someone else has been building. And we have great, you know, weekly meetings on this and have a great Asana process and everything in place. So I, I think it's, it's definitely a good degree of process science, but you still have to kind of that wild storm and creativity in there to stay ahead of the game. Wild storming. I like that. That's going to go in the title of the episode for sure. Okay, let's let's back up again. So you've come from uh, Hydrant where you've got a pretty good track record of, of helping them grow. You are recruited at Glamnetic. You, you take the position. What does your first week or first couple of weeks look like? What are what are your power moves when you enter an organization like this to to grow it? Yeah, power moves. It's, it's a funny term. Um, I think, you know, like any company that grew very quickly, um, there were some processes that either weren't fully built out or just had some opportunity for improvement. So it sounds boring, but you know, one of the first things that I worked on was developing a naming convention, starting to work with our data partner in terms of building out this really solid kind of warehouse and front end that we have in place now, um, building out the creative Asana process. And this has kind of been an ongoing thing. I, I think processes are never done being built, um, especially as you bring new people into the team, you have to make improvements, say, hey, if this is working and this isn't, then we need to change this. If someone new comes into the team and they're going to be responsible for something, how do they want to run a process? How do they want to run a process? So it was a lot of process building, um, to be honest, and then just kind of working with uh, Kevin, our, our co-founder counterpart to Anne, kind of thinking through longer term uh, revenue forecasting and the sorts of channels that we wanted to invest in outside of our core, you know, Facebook, Google mix to make those uh, goals achievable. Um, and I think this ended up being extremely beneficial with everything that's happened with iOS 14. We were kind of already starting to make steps towards that diversification of channels. So we were playing less catch up at the point in time where everyone was kind of starting to try to diversify. Very cool. And what were your first moves to diversification outside of your the big two? Part of it was we started increasing our investment in Google. 
uh, you know, Google shopping and non-brand uh, are really exciting opportunities for us. We started testing into channels like we, we actually launched our first TV campaign um, about a month ago at this point, which has been extremely exciting. Uh, we worked with a great creative partner for that. And, uh, you know, we're working with a, a great TV buying team as well. Um, testing into, you know, newsletter, testing into podcast, um, testing into display. I mean, some of these things are still active. Some of these things are not still active, but I think it's important to test them regardless um, and, you know, try and iterate and tweak and improve over time. Did any of those things hit in a way that they'll become a permanent part of the growth plan, specifically around podcasts and a few of those other sort of outside of the norm things you mentioned, like TV? Yeah, I mean, part of it is, you know, you don't always want to reveal your secrets as to what's working and not. We definitely have a couple of those channels that have been exciting for us. Um, you know, I, I think uh, podcast has been has been exciting, but we're still, you know, pretty early stages there. So uh, hard to say in one direction or another right now. Very cool. So uh, you expand the, the Google. I had to ask you too, we just did a podcast on this recently. You mentioned non expanding non-branded search. What's your position on branded search for a company like Glamnetic where you are a first mover to the market and there may be a benefit in kind of protecting and bidding on that brand? Yeah, I mean, I think it really comes down to structuring it to uh, maximize incrementality. Um, I do think you have to uh, defend your brand terms Um to some degree, you just don't want to overinvest in it. So I, I think there are some tricks that you can do to make sure that you know you're focusing on more incremental brand customers, however you would define them. I don't want to get into the specific tactical pieces of it, but I think you do have to invest in brand search. I just I think there's a certain threshold you want to keep an eye on and make sure that your you know brand search percent of total investment on that channel isn't going over a certain percentage. And also just obviously keep tracking across things like Google Analytics and make sure that you know it's backing out versus just kind of the ROAS that's popping up and that if you're starting to spend more, brand search always tricks you with ROAS essentially. So you want to make sure that that ROAS is actually being translated into the revenue that you're seeing in real life. And you want to make sure that you are feeding your Facebook and other pixel data, your your most uh, intent-driven searchers. So you want to make sure that you're using your Facebook click ID on those branded term campaigns so that you're building audiences based on people searching for your stuff. We, we harp on that all the time. <laughs> totally. Okay, so we've talked about expanding D2C, but you also mentioned that a part of Glamnetics growth strategy has been breaking into retail as well as Amazon. So maybe just start with retail. Was that something that you pioneered coming in as head of growth as well, or is that something already on go? Um, so we had a great uh, head of retail who came in around the same time. Um, Christina, uh, the team had done some strong legwork on getting into Ulta, but Christina has really been able to help us kind of um, grow everything out significantly. I, I think retail, the most important thing about it as well is in, it doesn't just provide a another sales channel, it provides a relatively predictable sales channel, which from like a revenue forecasting standpoint makes everyone's lives easier, but also it provides kind of a additional degree of brand awareness that you can see ultimately translated into D2C. If you're in retail, people have seen you, let's say in Ulta before, and then they see your ad on Facebook, hopefully you're gonna see a click-through rate improvement there because people recognize you versus you having to kind of make that whole sale off of that one digital touch point. So um, we're really excited with what's happening in retail and, you know, have an excellent team working on that. Now, just to jump right back to TV, did you have any high level advice or high, high level learnings that you've garnered in your first month, I guess, running these campaigns? I think it's something that a lot of people are thinking about in our audience and not as many have taken the leap. Any, any high level advice for people thinking about it? Yeah, um, invest in your creative. 
Um, I, I think that was something that I've, I've learned both from personal experience uh, in, in prior TV attempts um, and just talking to other brands. I, I think the approach I take on Facebook from a creative standpoint is you should feel comfortable breaking eggs to make your omelet. Uh, it doesn't necessarily need to be the prettiest ad out there as long as it conveys the points and it does well. But on TV, I think people are used to a certain standard of what they're seeing on their television. And you, I know at a certain point in time, some people will still say in Facebook, like, ugly ads perform well because they're eye-catching. It, it's not the same thing on uh, TV, I would say. So invest in your creative. Um, make sure it looks good. Make sure it conveys your points well. Um, and then also just, you know, stay as close to the data as you possibly can. Different TV partners will provide different amounts of data, but ask a lot of questions, <laughs> I would definitely say. I think, you know, obviously with any partner that you work with, including Facebook, like they want to set up their metrics to look as good as humanly possible, so you pour more money into that, but you, you want to make sure that if something looks too good, you're cross-referencing with Google Analytics, you're cross-referencing with Shopify, you're saying, okay, is there something else that explains this improvement, or if I remove all else, can this only be isolated to this TV investment? And the last thing I would really say is don't expect incredible results in the first couple of weeks. Um, most partners that you run TV with are going to cast a relatively broad net um, in terms of what you're testing. You know, I, we came into it, I think, with a, with a pretty good idea of where our customers would be, what they're interested in, as well as some kind of incremental areas of opportunity that we wanted to tackle. But we still needed to cast a relatively broad net because obviously you're not setting up unless you're running streaming, which is a whole separate thing. You're not setting up and targeting, I want to hit women who are X to Y who are interested in beauty. Uh, you have to say, okay, where are those women and how do I most effectively reach them from a TV standpoint? Okay, so we've got TV covered. Uh, I imagine podcasts are a similar thing in that it is quite often a longer term thing where you're set. I recently had someone on Omigo and they were talking about how it was six months six months later they were still seeing people on post purchase surveys saying they come they came in from the podcast. It's like podcasts have those they really anchor. I feel like if you if you have a good relationship with a podcaster and they tell you about a product, it really can like anchor it in there in a way that can have long lasting benefits. Is that something you saw on the podcasting side? Yeah, I mean, so I, I ran for podcast for about a year when I was at, at Hydrant, um, so I, I have more data on that side. Um, obviously, with any new brand that you're starting podcasting on, it takes a little bit, but we definitely had a couple podcasts um, at my former role where it was just how much can we possibly spend here because it just you know hit again and again and again. I think the thing with podcasts is just making sure that you're improving your ratio of uh, hits in the number of swings that you're taking over time. But um, essentially, you know, you're, it's not necessarily increasing your at-bats constantly. It's just making sure that you are making connection. And I like to think about it from the standpoint of taking maybe one big, one really big swing per batch of uh, podcasts that you're doing. So you're maybe going to have that one like huge podcast that you think really is going to align with your audience, but you recognize that if it doesn't go well, it's going to be a pretty big investment and you just have to be comfortable with that. And sometimes they hit and sometimes they don't. But the majority of what you're investing in should be those smaller guys who are more likely to kind of hit your CAC or your ROAS targets or whatever you're optimizing towards. I like it. In a baseball metaphor, I think it would be making sure that you're focused on your on-base plus slugging percentage. So you have to be taking those those shots at getting those those extra bags and not just looking to get on base every time. For sure. To, to follow the metaphor through. 
Need high-quality, fully licensed UGC? With Minisocial, you can produce beautiful, authentic, and fully licensed user-generated content featuring your products with micro-influencer creators. D2C brands like Native, Olipop, Hydrant, and others love working with Minisocial as a way to populate their organic social acquisition channels, website, and beyond, while also competing dollar-for-dollar dollar with traditional influencer activations on Instagram and TikTok. Get started on a campaign at minisocial.com today. And then when it comes to Amazon, you said you're having an interesting experience with Amazon. How how long into your tenure at Glamnetic uh, was Amazon becoming a priority and, and how's that going? Yeah, um, so Amazon has been running for a while. We've just really been kind of trying to um, to grow our presence there in the last few months. And I think any Amazon person you talk to will tell you that there's a huge flywheel effect ultimately. And your, your first couple of months really on Amazon, you're trying to get something to pick up within the flywheel and getting to the point where you're paying for fewer and fewer of your sales, like really closely tracking that paid to organic percentage essentially. And, you know, ultimately like how is your tacos versus just your ACOS um, improving while you're scaling total revenue? Um, so I, I think, that there's a certain point where in your first few months when you really want to get something going, you have to invest a bit more and potentially be comfortable with a bit of a higher tacos. Or if you just have some product that really hits, like some people do just have one product that really takes off and it's going to be number one in its category and you don't have to worry about that too much. But I would say for most people, that's that's not necessarily what happens. So you just kind of have to keep keeping a close eye on your reviews. Um, Amazon has actually introduced um, more kind of customer experience touch points recently that allow you to directly engage with customers who have had negative experiences. So um, I wish they'd done that years ago, um, but I think it's making sure that your reviews are really strong um, by keeping a genuine positive experience with your customers, by making sure your product quality is strong, constantly optimizing your ATF and A-plus content, making sure that you're leveraging the learnings that you're having on D2C as well over to Amazon in terms of what messaging customers are responding to, and just seeing when it makes sense to launch products on there. I, I think most brands would probably tell you that they don't have the exact same product distribution on Amazon and on D2C. So that's always kind of a, a, a close game um, to, that we keep an eye on to figure out when does it make sense to roll something over versus uh, when does it make sense to not. So um, really happy with the growth we've been seeing across like all of our categories that are on Amazon, I would say. I had a request recently from a listener to make sure that we always tell people what the acronyms mean. We do have a very learned audience. We have a very geeky, uh, you know, marketing audience. And tacos is one of my favorite. Is that's that's total cost of of acquisition on Amazon? Is that what tacos is? Total ad cost over spend. So generally on Amazon, you're looking at ACOS, which is the inverse of ROAS. So ACOS is traditionally just like revenue tied to ads divided by ad spend, whereas tacos is all revenue divided by ad spend. So the reason that's important is if you go back to what we said about increasing the percent of revenue coming from organic versus from paid, theoretically, as you have more revenue coming from organic, your tacos should improve because you're able to spend the same or spend less to get more. Very cool. Um, and how have you, like on Amazon, one of the biggest worries sometimes is that you blend in. Amazon might launch a competitor. There's other competitors there. What are some of the ways that you've employed to kind of stand out on Amazon, differentiate yourself? I mean, I, I think a lot of it really just comes down to ensuring product quality is is, is optimal. Um, anyone who runs both D2C and Amazon will also tell you a certain amount of traffic that you spend on Facebook, even if you're directing it towards D2C, is going to ultimately go to Amazon. So as we continue to invest in not just Facebook, but any upper funnel channels, 
um, I think that does help lift our Amazon presence and help people like think that, all right, when you think of mag magnetic lashes and you're going to Amazon, you think of Glamnatic. Um, and then I think just being kind of one of the bigger players in the space um, definitely helps us out there as well. Uh, and you know, going back to what we said about TV, um, Amazon's a huge place where you tend to see lift from running TV. It's not just your direct consumer site, because if you think about the broader population, a lot of people do go to Amazon as their, their first place to try and find something just because everyone's so used to one to two day shipping. If they're excited about a new product, they want to get it as quickly as possible. So um, I think Amazon lift was one of the things that we were expecting to see uh, when we launched TV as well. I think that's a really great point is that if you're going to try something with such a broad top of funnel, you know, that's maybe outside of your core thing, make sure you've got Amazon there as a catch all because you're absolutely right. That is like a lot of people's first instinct just to go, you know, use Amazon as a search engine. Let's talk a little bit, you know, your product Glamnetic is built, I imagine, for influencers, built for partnerships, built for. Uh, so, so talk a little bit about the influencer strategy with Glamnetic and, and, and how that's done. Actually, one of the reasons why I was so you know interested in this role at Glamnetic was to learn more about kind of our influencer strategy because I think it's something where we're, we're doing a lot of things in the influencer space at a much quicker velocity um, and just more than you know a lot of other brands even within the beauty space. So uh, whitelisting has been has been huge for us, as you know many brands say. But I think uh, working with influencers. Um, We've just been able to create some great partnerships there. And I, I think kind of pairing with all the crazy data tracking that we talked about earlier, um, it allows us to really understand what's actually working and what's not. Um, and we have a really excellent influencer team um, who they're probably one of the most data-driven influencer teams that I've ever worked with, which is really great for me because that's how I prefer to operate. So uh, we have a really close collaboration in terms of tracking closely. When posts go live, um, what were the number of codes that came through? What was the revenue? Uh, we also closely track all of our influencers with UTMs so that even if someone doesn't utilize the code, we can have an idea of what other traffic and what other conversions came in through those UTMs. And then pairing both... Um, the you know, direct revenue from those influencers, as well as uh, if we run their ads on paid, whether it's directly through our channel or directly through whitelisting, what does revenue and performance look like there? And kind of taking that broader uh, omni-channel view and determining whether an influencer was successful or not. So I, I think we do a really good job with influencers as is, and I think it's something we're looking to uh, continue building out and make sure that we maintain a best-in-class influencer program. Nice. Now, you mentioned whitelisting, and this is, again, most listeners to the podcast are aware of what this is. This is simply where you sort of make it a, an, an arrangement with uh, an influencer to put ad spend directly through their ad handle. So their ad content that they created for you is being promoted through their ad handle with a link to your site. Yes, exactly. I think a lot of brands have really been leading into this. I, I feel like it was about a year or a year and a half ago when um, everyone I was talking to was saying, uh, you know, whitelisting is, is the next big thing. And I I feel like honestly half of the influencer posts I see on my feed nowadays, especially on Instagram, are, are whitelisting posts. Um, so clearly it's, it's working for a number of people and it's not something I see going away anytime soon. How do you determine when an ad gets the whitelisting treatment? Is it something that you, you sort of, you let, you sort of, the influencer runs it and then depending on this, the success with their organic audience, you determine, or do you sort of test most of your influencer ads as whitelisted ads as well? Um, I would say it's kind of a, I think we test a fair number of our influencer ads as whitelisting, but with, you know, bigger influencers, a lot of times we kind of see how things uh, work on the organic side first before we, uh, you know, discuss rolling into to whitelisting. But we're very much a, a company that wants to test as much as we possibly can. Um, so I think we're, we're open to testing um, any content that really, you know, 
comes comes across our plates. Very cool. Now, speaking of places to test your content, tell me what what you're seeing on TikTok right now. This is we talk about this on every every one of the podcasts. Everyone I talk to is either testing it or is thriving there. What are you What are you seeing on TikTok? I imagine there's a great audience for your products there. Yeah. Um, so TikTok, I I think something that's really important about TikTok, and I would have said the same thing about Facebook a couple of years ago, is uh, the maintenance of both your organic and your paid presence. Um, I, I remember everyone used to have like a benchmark in terms of being able to scale your ads on Facebook or Instagram, a certain number of followers that you really needed to hit when your engagement rate needed to look like. Ever since Instagram and Facebook kind of uh, deprecated organic reach a couple of years ago, I think it's less important, but TikTok hasn't done the same. So I think, you know, making sure you're working really closely in lockstep with your organic social team to ensure that... Um, um, and, and then, of course, I'm, I'm sure lots of people here have spoken about Spark ads um, or essentially the whitelisting version on, on TikTok. We um, haven't actually. Oh, okay. We haven't actually spoke about Spark ads if you wanted to tell people what Spark ads were. Yeah. So Spark ads are, uh, as I said, essentially TikTok's version of, of whitelisting um, where, you know, if you're working with an influencer, they can uh, allow you to run their organic TikTok post as an ad. So I'm on TikTok, I'll admit it. Um, you know, a lot of times if you see an influencer and then it has sponsored under it, that's probably a Spark ad being run by the partner that they worked with. Um, so work, just staying closely with your organic social team and ensuring that, you know, you're getting the right, uh, your organic social and your influencer team, of course, um, making sure you're getting the right posts for Spark ads, um, I think is really crucial. I do think they still have some work to do from, you know, a targeting standpoint. Uh, match rates for audiences are, are really poor. Um, our reps will even admit that, so it's it's really tricky. Um, but you know, I'm very optimistic. Obviously, the CPMs are so much lower than you're seeing on any other platform. So, especially as we're in Q4 and heading into the more competitive parts of Q4, I think it's it's something that a lot of people, including us, are going to continue to invest on. And especially in this mix you're talking about of paid versus organic, TikTok's a little bit unique in that if you're starting out, you don't need to tie it to your, like with Facebook, when you're advertising on Facebook for your brand, you are tied to your Facebook page. And yeah. I remember those years when you were saying, okay, you know, you have to make sure your your organic page has posts going up regularly, that there has engagement there, and that can impact the rest of your campaign and get, get you all this traffic. That's, as you say, kind of been deprecated, but I think it's a really good point that, that it's still such an active benefit to have on TikTok, even though they've made it so that you don't, you don't need to do it. So there's a temptation to just avoid it and put budget there. For sure. Um, but I think the brands that have been successful, at least that I've seen, have thriving both organic and paid presences. So that tells me that either they're investing in organic as well, or they are um, using their own spark, their own organic ads as spark posts or something like that to ensure that they're getting traffic to their page as well. So um, and I think most brands are probably still seeing, you know, a corresponding lift in terms of how much they're spending and how much their TikTok followership is growing, which is always good to see. Um, so, yeah, you definitely can go around about it and not worry about it. But um, it's probably not something I would do unless, you know, you have a very small team and you don't have the resources to invest in building out your organic TikTok presence. Totally. I want to talk a little bit about your mystery offer that you have in, in your customer experience. What have you been testing around the mystery offer? Yeah, um, different levels and also just kind of whether it's a mystery offer or whether we directly state what it is. Um, and it's a test we're keeping very close eyes on, trying to see what's been most successful. Um, the results surprised me. And then it also is not just how the offer appears when someone first gets it, but then how that translates into you know our welcome flows and how should we be messaging it there? If someone saw one versus the other, should we be uh, telling them one thing versus the other to keep the messaging consistent? But um, I think 
I think a lot of people like mystery. I think this era of, um, you know, mystery boxes were a really big thing for a while. So I think that was something that spoke from a, you know, directly capitalistic standpoint to people enjoying mystery. Um, so it's, uh, it, it was a great call by our team to test. And I think it's been something, um, I love having more variables to test on every touch point within our customer journey. And where do you test it? Is this, is this something that when they come to the site, there's an offer for a mystery or is this something that they get emailed SMS that they've already been a loyal customer? What context are you using it? Yeah. I mean, I, I think the the most prominent mystery offer that we tend to have is on our, is on our site pop-up. So that's, you know, newer customers decide you haven't been there previously. Um, with, with our SMS partner, they'll receive that pop-up. Um, but we do occasionally uh, test mystery offers um, and, and broader email campaigns. Um, and we actually have seen similar results uh, in terms of which side of things have been successful. So um, it, it's nice to be able to kind of vary the promo offers that you're doing. Um, because I think if you just say, oh, 20% off all the time, um, people kind of get blind to that. So if you can say, oh, it's a mystery, like even if it is even 20% off, people get very excited about that and engage more and come back to site, which is ultimately the goal when we're talking about retention. And when you've got a novel product with a lot of different SKUs, a lot of different options that people may not be super familiar with, it also takes some of the choice off their plate as well. I imagine that's working in your benefit. And it also helps you with inventory because it allows you to offer whatever you want in your mystery offer, what you have on hand necessarily. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I, I do think that's a great point in terms of when you have newer customers coming in. Um, what is the balance between saying, hey, we have all these different styles and all these different options, but also overwhelming them and leading to uh, analysis paralysis to some degree. So um, I think that's another thing where uh, bundles have been a great opportunity for us in terms of um, helping customers find, all right, this is what we think is best for beginners um, and making sure that, you know, they get a couple of different lash styles that they like, as well as always making sure that they get a liner at the same time. So uh, optimizing for beginners um, is, is very crucial for us as well. And just optimizing in general, having you know spoken to you on the hydrant front and you know speaking to you now, I know that A-B testing is is really your jam. Uh, you know, you're A-B testing these offers, you're like, what are, what goes on in your mind in, in the world of A-B testing on any given week? Like what kind of things are you testing? It depends on the channel that we're running on. Um, you know, I, I think if you're not constantly A-B testing and SMS or email, you're doing it wrong. That's, you know, such a huge opportunity. Um, and then I think one of the biggest mistakes that people make while testing is you run a test, maybe you capture the results. Not all people actually capture the results properly, but then not acting upon those results. Like a lot of times you say, okay, we ran the safety test. This one did better. Great. And then it's dropped. Um, so, you know, we make sure to track super closely what worked and then have a conversation about why we think it worked and how we can, you know, iterate that moving forwards and make sure that we're kind of pressure testing that variable that we think has been impactful. So um, that's the email SMS side, site side, you know, testing offers, testing different ways to help people find lashes. You know, we have a lash finder, we have a quiz, we have a comparison page. So, you know, testing those, seeing where the greatest response rate is. And then, you know, it goes back to the ad side as well, uh, testing, you know, different openers, testing different text headers. Um, but yeah, I, I think the most important point, and obviously the, the hardest point as well, is making sure that you're tracking all of those tests appropriately, discussing why they worked or why they didn't, and actioning on them. 
I think so often it ends up being, you know, maybe one person's doing the test and then that one person gets a vague idea of like, oh, ads that tend to have this do better or, Mm -hmm. but it's not something that goes into the whole organization. So I think it's super important that you have like a real organizational structure, real communication structure on A-B testing to make sure that you are continually building on what you learn. 100%. Yeah. Uh, I wanted to ask too, like I, I'm on the, these TikToks, these Snapchats enough to know that there are all these filters that show you what you would look like with any kind of eyelashes. Is that something, is that AR thing, something that, that you've worked with at Glamnetiquette or are thinking about? Yeah, we do actually have an Instagram filter, um, our little AR filter for a number of lashes. Um, so I think AR is a great opportunity. Um, obviously there's a certain amount of uh, tech investment there. Um, but it, it's definitely something that, you know, we're discussing. And of course, the, if someone can see exactly what a lash is going to look like on them, then they're going to have a pretty good idea of, um, the right one to buy. But we do, we do have an AR Instagram filter, um, might have a Snapchat one as well. I know we definitely do on Instagram, but, um, I know it's very popular with our customers. Um, and also a data point, you know, that we try to capture to make sure that, you know, when we're messaging them on email, let's say, uh, we can potentially leverage the same um, results or whatever one they spend the most time with. Very cool. Now, uh, with Black Friday, Cyber Monday, about a month, little over a month away, what's on your radar this week? Like, what are what are you focused on this week uh, in preparation for, for Q4 events? What are your thoughts about that? Yeah, um, I mean, we... <laughs> Honestly, we sketched out our plans for Q4 back in July, um, and we've just kind of been uh, loosely testing some of the ideas that we want to run leading up to then and making some tweaks. Um, We knocked out all of our messaging guidelines back in late August, early September. We captured all of our content already. Um, Most of it's been edited, so we're kind of testing messaging on both the ads and the the email side, trying to figure out like little elements um, that we should be utilizing when we're speaking to different segments of our customers. Also just kind of making sure that we're as happy with our site as humanly possible because if we're expecting uh, expecting an influx of net new customers, we want to make sure our site is as easily navigable and easily understandable for people who are less aware of the brand. Um, But I I can't say enough good things about our team in terms of what we've been able to do for Prep for Black Friday. I've never been this, I don't want to say calm, but this uh, prepared for Black Friday uh, as of mid-October as, uh, as I'm feeling right now. So um, it, it's a good feeling. But yeah, it's really just kind of the ongoing testing to make sure that we can you know, get a little extra upside for anything we're doing. And you don't need to go into great detail, but are you basically just planning a really great sale on Black Friday over Cyber Monday? Or do you have a more nuanced approach where you have pre-sales and things popping up? I would say we have a bit of a nuanced approach, but we're also just going to stick to what we know works. Um, sometimes brands will try to outsmart themselves and do something cute that they think will stand out, but ultimately, when you just when you know what customers respond to, you kind of just have to give it to them. But um, I think we have some nice surprises that uh, customers will be excited about in terms of what we've been doing. And um, another team I have to give a lot of credit to is our ops team for you know working really closely with us in terms of figuring out what's feasible um, in terms of like some of these more nuanced offers in particular. Is Halloween a thing with because with, I obviously people may build lashes into their into a costume or things. Is it something that you're yeah that you you have campaigns around? Yeah, I mean uh, we have a Halloween collection live on our site right now um, that we're, we're running an offer on. So if anyone wants some uh, spooky selects, uh, go to glenmedic.com. We also had a you know collection uh, come out a couple months ago uh, with some gel nail stickers that have very spooky designs on them. So if anyone's less into lashes and more into nails, which has been another really exciting category for us, some great options there. But yeah, I mean, you also just can do so many more 
fun things with ads around Halloween. So I have a really great um, content creator on our team and she turned out some really cool looks from, from a Halloween standpoint. So we're running some ads against that. But yeah, I think Halloween, Halloween itself isn't, you know, unless you're in the costume industry as much, I would say, of a like e-commerce opportunity, but it's an opportunity to do something fun, which we all want to, you know, have a little fun as long as we're sticking within best practices, of course. Got to get some tricks with your treats, some treats with your tricks. So last year, 2020, you, there was this explosive growth on this brand. And that's in 2020 is when most of us were kind of like in our house. Uh, we're not, there weren't, there wasn't as many people going to the clubs or going to parties necessarily in 2020, yet you had this incredible growth. What are you, like, what are you seeing in 2021? Like, is, are you seeing a, a rebound, not like a, even more growth now that the, uh, the world is opening up? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, we're, you know, we're definitely still continuing to see year over year growth, but I think people are getting through all these sorts of, you know, Zoom calls and meet calls or whatever you're using, people are getting more attention on their faces than ever. Um, so, That's a good point, uh, actually. yeah, I mean, people, and especially if you have to be on camera every single day, constantly, you want an easy solution to make yourself look as best as possible without having to spend hours and hours on it. So if it's, all right, I can spend, you know, 10 minutes to 20 minutes doing my makeup, or I can just apply some eyeliner, drop a lash on, and I'm good to go. Um, I think that's something that a lot of people found really attractive. And, you know, we, uh, I, I think it's something that is also just not going away. Like the world is starting to open up a little bit. So uh, I think it's, it's an opportunity from the standpoint of the need for Zoom friendly lashes is still there. But also, as people are starting to go on first dates and going to the club, maybe more of our fun lashes are kind of moving as well. Um, but I, I think it's a product that uh, really there's something for everyone. Um, whether you're looking for a purple extra long lash or you're looking for a half lash that looks as natural as humanly possible and people just think maybe you put on some really solid mascara um, and you did your makeup even though you didn't, um, I, I think there's a great opportunity for it to be a product that's useful by pretty much anyone. Maybe it's Maybelline, maybe it's Magnets. You might want to steal that one in your ads. Uh, very cool. Okay. Two rapid fire questions here at the end. I think we asked this previously with Hydrant and I, I should have re reviewed what your answer was, but right now, if we were to give you $50,000 for your marketing campaigns, where would you put that uh, in, in this Q4 to see the most growth? Weird product testing. Granted, that's not feasible because obviously there's, let, let's pretend that I can snap my fingers and have like a new product created. I think different packaging of products, different like testing of products um, is, is probably where I would put that and just put it into a, a creation of, you know, maybe limited edition net new products. Very cool. And then what, in the world of D2C, I know you're very dialed in with other brands in, in this community. Are there any other D2C brands out there that you're really admiring for an aspect of their customer acquisition strategies? I think Dr. Squatch is putting out some of the like best TikTok ads and TikTok campaigns that I've seen. I know they're one of the biggest advertisers on there. Um, I think they're doing excellent work. I know they have a, a great growth team there. I've spoken to them a couple times. Um, I, I'd love to steal their brain on, on what they're doing on TikTok. Um, I've seen a bunch of ads also for designer like perfumes as well that, that are like, that's one of the most common ads I'm seeing on TikTok right now. I know Dr. Squatch had like a couple for a long time that was talking about, here's, you know, my, my, my man's soap kind of thing. And I, they're kind of doing that now with solid perfumes. And there's a couple brands there that seem to be blowing up. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's another brand that I think has been super interesting from the D2C standpoint in terms of a rebirth. And granted, it's not a traditional D2C brand is Abercrombie. 
Abercrombie, I don't know if you're probably not on the right segment of TikTok for this, but they have this pair of jeans that is blowing up on TikTok that everyone's buying. It's these like high-waisted 90s mom jeans. And I think Abercrombie has done a really solid pivot to creating an excellent e-com presence, um, which is not a sentence I ever thought that I would say, but I think that they're doing a really good job, um, both from kind of a merchandising and design standpoint, as well as a uh, advertising standpoint. So um, one traditional D2C brand, one non-traditional D2C brand um, that I think has made a solid pivot. And I'm just very glad that you brought up sides of TikTok because we won't get into the sides of TikTok that I'm on, but let's just say it involves berries and cream. That's the, I don't know if you know that, do you know the berries and cream side of TikTok? Oh, I, I do. Um, I've only recently escaped, but now you saying that, it's probably going to be, the, the little lad's going to be back in my feed. <laughs> <laughs> well, here's to little lads. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Margaret. Uh, we'll catch up with you again soon after Q4. Thanks again. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much for listening to today's episode. If you're not a subscriber to our newsletter, you can do that right now at directtoconsumeralloneword.co. I'm Eric Dick, and this has been the D2C Podcast. We'll see you next time.